0: Part four of Tale Five of Five Tales by john Galsworthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by David Wales. He woke at half past two, an hour which long experience had taught him brings panic intensity to all awkward thoughts. Experience had also taught him that a further waking at the proper hour of eight showed the folly of such panic. On this particular morning the thought which had gathered rapid momentum was that if he became ill at his age not improbable, he would not see her. From this it was but a step to realization that he would be cut off too when his son and June returned from Spain. How could he justify desire for the company of one who had stolen early morning does not mince words, June's lover. That lover was dead, but June was a stubborn little thing, warm-hearted, but stubborn as wood and, quite true, not one who forgot. By the middle of next month they would be back. He had barely five weeks left to enjoy the new interest which had come into what remained of his life. Darkness showed up to him absurdly clear the nature of his feeling. Admiration for beauty, a craving to see that which delighted his eyes. Preposterous at his age, and yet what other reason was there for asking June to undergo such painful reminder, and how prevent his son and his son's wife from thinking him very queer? He would be reduced to sneaking up to London, which tired him and the least indisposition would cut him off even from that. He lay with eyes open, setting his jaw against the prospect, and calling himself an old fool, while his heart beat loudly, and then seemed to stop beating altogether. He had seen the dawn lighting the window-chinks, heard the birds chirp and twitter, and the cocks crow, before he fell asleep again, and woke, tired, but sane. Five weeks before he need bother, at his age an eternity. But that early morning panic had left its mark, had slightly fevered the will of one who had always had his own way. He would see her as often as he wished. Why not go up to town and make that codicil at his solicitor's instead of writing about it? She might like to go to the opera. But by train for he would not have that fat chap beacon grinning behind his back. Servants were such fools, and, as likely as not, they had known all the past history of Irene and young Bosany. Servants knew everything, and suspected the rest. He wrote to her that morning, My dear Irene, I have to be up in town to-morrow. If you would like to have a look in at the opera." Come and dine with me quietly. But where? It was decades since he had dined anywhere in London, save at his club, or at a private house. Ah, that new-fangled place close to Covent Garden. Let me have a line tomorrow morning to the Piedmont Hotel, where to expect you there at seven o'clock. Yours affectionately, jolyon Forsythe. She would understand that he just wanted to give her a little pleasure, for the idea that she should guess he had this itch to see her was instinctively unpleasant to him. It was not seemly that one so old should go out of his way to see beauty, especially in a woman. The journey next day, short though it was, and the visit to his lawyers, tired him. It was hot, too, and, after dressing for dinner, He lay down on the sofa in his bedroom to rest a little. He must have had a sort of fainting fit, for he came to himself feeling very queer, and with some difficulty rose and rang the bell. Why, it was past seven, and there he was, and she would be waiting. But suddenly the dizziness came on again, and he was obliged to relapse on the sofa. He heard the maid's voice say, "'Did you ring, sir?' "'Yes, come here.' He could not see her clearly, for the cloud in front of his eyes. Um, I'm, "'I'm not well. I want some sal volatile.' "'Yes, sir.' Her voice sounded frightened. Old Jolian made an effort. "'Don't go. Take this message to my niece, a lady waiting in the hall.' a lady in grey. Say, Mr. Forsyte is not well. The heat. He is very sorry. If he is not down directly, she is not to wait dinner." When she was gone he thought feebly, why did I say a lady in grey? She may be in anything. So volatile! He did not go off again, yet was not conscious of how Irene came to be standing beside him, holding smelling-salts to his nose and pushing a pillow up behind his head. He heard her say anxiously, Dear Uncle Jolyon, what is it? Was dimly conscious of the soft pressure of her lips on his hand, then drew a long breath of smelling-salts, suddenly discovered strength in them, and sneezed. Ah, he said, it's nothing how did you get here? Go down and dine. The tickets are on the dressing-table. I shall be all right in a minute. He felt her cool hand on his forehead, smelled violets, and sat divided between a sort of pleasure and a determination to be all right. Why, you are in grey, he said. Help me up. Once on his feet he gave himself a shake. What business had I to go off like that?" And he moved very slowly to the glass. What a cadaverous chap! Her voice behind him murmured, "'You mustn't come down, Uncle. You must rest. Fiddlesticks! A glass of champagne will soon set me to rights. I can't have you missing the opera.' But the journey down the corridor was troublesome. What carpets they had in these new-fangled places, so thick that you tripped up on them at every step." In the lift he noticed how concerned she looked, and said with a ghost of a twinkle, "'I'm a pretty host.' When the lift stopped he had to hold firmly to the seat to prevent it slipping under him. But after soup and a glass of champagne he felt much better and began to enjoy an infirmity which had brought such solicitude into her manner towards him. I should have liked you for a daughter, he said suddenly, and, watching the smile in her eyes, went on, You mustn't get wrapped up in the past at your time of life. Plenty of that when you get to be my age. that That's a nice dress. I like the style. I made it myself. Ah." Uh, a woman who could make herself a pretty frock had not lost her interest in life. Make hay while the sun shines, he said, and drink that up. I want to see some color in your cheeks. We mustn't waste life. It doesn't do. There's a new Marguerite to-night. Let's hope she won't be fat. And Mephisto. Anything more dreadful than a fat chap playing the devil I can't imagine. But they did not go to the opera, after all, for in getting up from dinner the dizziness came over him again, and she insisted on his staying quiet and going to bed early. When he parted from her at the door of the hotel, having paid the cabman to drive her to Chelsea, he sat down again for a moment to enjoy the memory of her words, You are such a darling to me, Uncle Jolyon. Why, who wouldn't be? He would have liked to stay up another day and take her to the zoo, but two days running of him would bore her to death. No, he must wait till next Sunday. She had promised to come then. They would settle those lessons for Holly, if only for a month. It would be something. That little Mamselle Boyce wouldn't like it, but she would have to lump it. And, crushing his old opera hat against his chest, he sought the lift. He drove to Waterloo next morning, struggling with a desire to say, drive me to Chelsea, but his sense of proportion was too strong. Besides, he felt shaky, and did not want to risk another aberration like that of last night, away from home. Holly too was expecting him, and what he had in his bag for her. Not that there was any cupboard love in this little suite. She was a bundle of affection. Then, with the rather bitter cynicism of the old, he wondered for a second whether it was not cupboard love which made Irene put up with him. No, she was not that sort, either. She had, if anything, too little notion of how to butter her bread, no sense of property, poor thing. Besides, he had not breathed a word about that codicil, nor should he. Sufficient unto the day was the good thereof. In the Victoria which met him at the station, Holly was restraining the old dog Balthazar, and their caresses made Juby his drive home. All the rest of that fine hot day, and most of the next, he was content and peaceful, reposing in the shade, while the long lingering sunshine showered gold on the lawns and the flowers. But on Thursday evening, at his lonely dinner began to count the hours—sixty-five, till he would go down to meet her again in the little coppice, and walk up through the fields at her side. He had intended to consult the doctor about his fainting-fit, but the fellow would be sure to insist on quiet, no excitement, and all that. And he did not mean to be tied by the leg, did not want to be told of an infirmity, if there were one could not afford to hear of it at his time of life, now that this new interest had come. And he carefully avoided making any mention of it in a letter to his son. It would only bring them back with a run. How far this silence was due to consideration for their pleasure, how far to regard for his own, he did not pause to consider. That night, in his study, He had just finished his cigar, and was dozing off, when he heard the rustle of a gown, and was conscious of a scent of violets. Opening his eyes, he saw her, dressed in grey, standing by the fireplace, holding out her arms. The odd thing was that, though those arms seemed to hold nothing, they were curved as if around someone's neck, and her own neck was bent back her lips open, her eyes closed. She vanished at once, and there were the mantelpiece and his bronzes. But those bronzes and the mantelpiece had not been there when she was, only the fireplace and the wall. Shaken and troubled, he got up. I must take medicine, he thought. I can't be well. His heart beat too fast. He had an asthmatic feeling in the chest, and going to the window he opened it to get some air. A dog was barking far away, one of the dogs at Gage's farm, no doubt, beyond the coppice. A beautiful, still night, but dark. I dropped off, he mused, that's it, and I'll swear my eyes were open. A sound, like a sigh, seemed to answer. What's that? he said sharply. Who's there?" Putting his hand to his side to still the beating of his heart, he stepped out on the terrace. Something soft scurried by in the dark. Shoo! Oh, it was that grey cat. Young Bosinney was like a great cat, he thought. It was him in there that she—that she, that she was—he's got her still. He walked to the edge of the terrace, and looked down into the darkness. He could just see the powdering of the daisies on the unmown lawn, here to-day and gone to-morrow. And there came the moon, who saw all, young and old, alive and dead, and didn't care a dump. His own turn soon. For a single day of youth he would give what was left, and he turned again towards the house he could see the windows of the night nursery up there his little sweet would be asleep hope that dog won't wake her he thought what is it makes us love and makes us die ah i must go to bed and across the terrace stones growing grey in the moonlight he passed back within how should an old man live his days if not in dreaming of his well-spent past in that at all events There is no agitating warmth, only pale winter sunshine. The shell can withstand the gentle beating of the denimos of memory. The present he could distrust, the future shun. From beneath thick shade he could watch the sunlight creeping at his toes. If there be sun of summer, let him not go out into it, mistaking it for the Indian summer sun. Thus peradventure he shall decline softly, slowly, imperceptibly, until impatient nature clutches his windpipe, and he gasps away to death, some early morning, before the world is aired, and they put on his tombstone, In the fullness of years. Yea, if he preserve his principles in perfect order, a foresight may live on long after he is dead. Old Jolyon was conscious of all this, and yet there was in him that which transcended foresightism. For it is written that a foresight will not love beauty more than reason, for his own way more than his own health. And something beat within him in these days, that with each throb fretted at the thinning shell. His sagacity knew this, but it knew, too, that he could not stop that beating, nor would if he could. And yet, if you had told him he was living on his capital, he would have stared you down. No, no, a man did not live on his capital. It was not done. The shibboleths of the past were ever more real than the actualities of the present, and he to whom living on one's capital had always been anathema could not have borne to have applied so gross a phrase to his own case. Pleasure is healthful, beauty good to see, to live again in the youth of the young, and what else on earth was he doing?" Methodically, as had been the way of his whole life, he now arranged his time. On Tuesdays he journeyed up to town by train. Irene came and dined with him, and they went to the opera. On Thursdays he drove to town, and putting that fat chap and his horses up, met her in Kensington Gardens, picking up the carriage after he had left her, and driving home again in time for dinner. He threw out the casual formula that he had business in London on those two days. On Wednesdays and Saturdays she came down to give Holly music lessons. The greater the pleasure he took in her society, the more scrupulously fastidious he became just a matter-of-fact and friendly uncle. Not even in feeling, really, was he more, for, after all, there was his age. And yet, if she were late, he fidgeted himself to death. If she missed coming, which happened twice, his eyes grew sad as an old dog's, and he failed to sleep. And so a month went by a month of summer in the fields and in his heart with summer's heat and the fatigue thereof who could have believed a few weeks back that he would have looked forward to his son's and his granddaughter's return with something like dread there was such a delicious freedom such recovery of that independence a man enjoys before he founds a family about these weeks of lovely weather and this new companionship with one who demanded nothing, and remained always a little unknown, retaining the fascination of mystery. It was like a draught of wine to him, who has been drinking water for so long that he has almost forgotten the stir wine brings to his blood, the narcotic to his brain. The flowers were colored brighter, scents and music, and the sunlight, had a living value, were no longer mere reminders of past enjoyment. There was something now to live for which stirred him continually to anticipation. He lived in that, not in retrospection. The difference is considerable to any so old as he. The pleasures of the table, never of much consequence to one naturally abstemious, had lost all value he ate little without knowing what he ate and every day grew thinner and more worn to look at he was again a thread paper and to this thinned form his massive forehead with hollows at the temples gave more dignity than ever he was very well aware that he ought to see the doctor but liberty was too sweet he could not afford to pet his frequent shortness of breath and the pain in his side at the expense of liberty. Return to the vegetable existence he had led among the agricultural journals with the life-size Mangold Wurzels before this new attraction came into his life? No. He exceeded his allowance of cigars. Two a day had always been his rule. Now he smoked three, and sometimes four. A man will when he is filled with the creative spirit. But very often he thought, I must give up smoking and coffee, I must give up rattling up to town. But he did not. There was no one in any sort of authority to notice him, and this was a priceless boon. The servants perhaps wondered, but they were naturally dumb. Mademoiselle Boyce was too concerned with her own digestion, and too well-read to make personal allusions. Holly had not as yet an eye for the relative appearance of him who was her plaything and her god. It was left for Irene herself to beg him to eat more, to rest in the hot part of the day, to take a tonic, and so forth but she did not tell him that she was the cause of his thinness, for one cannot see the havoc oneself is working. A man of eighty-five has no passions, but the beauty which produces passion works on in the old way, till death closes the eyes which crave the sight of her. On the first day of the second week in July he received a letter from his son in Paris, to say that they would all be back on Friday. This had always been more sure than fate, but with the pathetic improvidence given to the old, that they may endure to the end, he had never quite admitted it. Now he did, and something would have to be done. He had ceased to be able to imagine life without this new interest, but that which is not imagined sometimes exists as foresights are perpetually finding to their cost. He sat in his old leather chair, doubling up the letter, and mumbling with his lips the end of an unlighted cigar. After to-morrow his Tuesday expeditions to town would have to be abandoned. He could still drive up, perhaps once a week, on the pretext of seeing his man of business. But even that would be dependent on his health for now they would begin to fuss about him. The lessons! The lessons must go on. She must swallow down her scruples, and June must put her feelings in her pocket. She had done so once, on the day after the news of Bosony's death. What she had done then she could surely do again now. Four years since that injury was inflicted on her, not Christian to keep the memory of old sores alive. June's will was strong, but his was stronger, for his sands were running out. Irene was soft. Surely she would do this for him, subdue her natural shrinking, sooner than give him pain. The lessons must continue, for if they did, he was secure. And, lighting his cigar at last, He began trying to shape out how to put it to them all, and explain this strange intimacy, how to veil and wrap it away from the naked truth, that he could not bear to be deprived of the sight of beauty. Ah! Holly! Holly was fond of her. Holly liked her lessons. She would save him, his little sweet, and with that happy thought he became serene and wondered what he had been wondering about so fearfully. He must not worry. It left him always curiously weak, and as if but half-present in his own body. That evening, after dinner, he had a return of the dizziness, though he did not faint. He would not ring the bell, because he knew it would mean a fuss and make his going up on the morrow more conspicuous. When one grew old, the whole world was in conspiracy to limit freedom, and, for what reason, just to keep the breath in him a little longer. He did not want it at such cost. Only the dog Balthazar saw his lonely recovery from that weakness, anxiously watched his master go to the sideboard and drink some brandy instead of giving him a biscuit. When at last old Jolian felt able to tackle the stairs, he went up to bed and, though still shaky next morning, the thought of the evening sustained and strengthened him. It was always such a pleasure to give her a good dinner. He suspected her of under-eating when she was alone, and at the opera to watch her eyes glow and brighten the unconscious smiling of her lips. She hadn't much pleasure, and this was the last time he would be able to give her that treat. But when he was packing his bag, he caught himself wishing that he had not the fatigue of dressing for dinner before him, and the exertion, too, of telling her about June's return. The opera that evening was Carmen, and he chose the last entracte, to break the news, instinctively putting it off till the last moment. She took it quietly, queerly. In fact, he did not know how she had taken it before the wayward music lifted up again, and silence became necessary. The mask was down over her face, that mask behind which so much went on that he could not see. She wanted time to think it over, no doubt. He would not press her, for she would be coming to give her lesson to-morrow afternoon, and he should see her then, when she had got used to the idea. In the cab he talked only of the carmen. He had seen better in the old days, but this was not bad at all. When he took her hand to say good-night, she bent quickly forward and kissed his forehead. "'Good-bye, dear Uncle Jolian. You have been so sweet to me.' "'Tomorrow, then,' he said. "'Good-night. Sleep well.' She echoed softly, "'Sleep well.' and from the cab window, already moving away, he saw her face screwed round towards him, and her hand put out in a gesture that seemed to linger. He sought his room slowly. They never gave him the same, and he could not get used to these spick-and-spandy bedrooms, with new furniture and gray-green carpets sprinkled all over with pink roses. He was wakeful and that wretched habanera kept throbbing in his head. His French had never been equal to its words, but its sense he knew, if it had any sense, a gypsy thing, wild and unaccountable. Well, there was in life something which upset all your care and plans, something which made men and women dance to its pipes and he lay staring from deep-sunk eyes into the darkness where the unaccountable held sway. You thought you had hold of life, but it slipped away behind you, took you by the scruff of the neck, forced you here and forced you there, and then, likely as not, squeezed life out of you. It took the very stars like that, he should not wonder, rubbed their noses together and flung them apart it had never done playing its pranks. Five million people in this great blunderbuss of a town, and all of them at the mercy of that life-force, like a lot of little dried peas hopping about on a board when you struck your fist on it. Ah well. Himself would not hop much longer. A good long sleep would do him good. How hot it was up here! How noisy! His forehead burned, She had kissed it just where he always worried, just there, as if she had known the very place and wanted to kiss it all away for him. But, instead, her lips left a patch of grievous uneasiness. She had never spoken in quite that voice, had never before made that lingering gesture, or looked back at him as she drove away. He got out of bed and pulled the curtains aside, his room faced down over the river. There was little air, but the sight of that breadth of water flowing by, calm, eternal, soothed him. The great thing, he thought, is not to make myself a nuisance. I'll think of my little suite, and go to sleep. But it was long before the heat and throbbing of the London night, died out into the short slumber of the summer morning, and old Jolyon had but forty winks. When he reached home next day, he went out to the flower-garden, and with the help of Holly, who was very delicate with flowers, gathered a great bunch of carnations. They were, he told her, for the Lady in Grey, a name still bandied between them, and he put them in a bowl in his study where he meant to tackle Irene the moment she came, on the subject of June and future lessons. Their fragrance and colour would help. After lunch he lay down, for he felt very tired, and the carriage would not bring her from the station till four o'clock. But as the hour approached he grew restless, and sought the schoolroom which overlooked the drive. The sun-blinds were down. And Holly was there with Mademoiselle Boyce, sheltered from the heat of a stifling July day, attending to their silkworms. Old Jolyon had a natural antipathy to these methodical creatures, whose heads and color reminded him of elephants, who nibbled such quantities of holes in nice green leaves, and smelled, as he thought, horrid. He sat down on a chintz-covered window seat whence he could see the drive, and got what air there was, and the dog Balthazar, who appreciated chintz on hot days, jumped up beside him. Over the cottage piano a violet dust-sheet, faded almost to grey, was spread, and on it the first lavender, whose scent filled the room. In spite of the coolness here, perhaps because of that coolness, The beat of life vehemently impressed his ebbed-down senses. Each sunbeam which came through the chinks had annoying brilliance. The dog smelled very strong. The lavender perfume was overpowering. Those silkworms heaving up their gray-green back seemed horribly alive, and Holly's dark head, bent over them, had a wonderfully silky sheen. A marvelous, cruelly strong thing was life when you were old and weak. It seemed to mock you with its multitude of forms and its beating vitality. He had never, till those last few weeks, had this curious feeling of being with one half of him eagerly borne along in the stream of life, and with the other half left on the bank, watching that helpless progress. Only when Irene was with him did he lose this double consciousness. Holly turned her head, pointed with her little brown fist to the piano, for to point with a finger was not well bred, and said slyly, "'Look at the lady in grey, Gran! Isn't she pretty to-day?' Old Jolyon's heart gave a flutter, and for a second the room was clouded. Then it cleared, and he said with a twinkle, "'Who's been dressing her up?' "'Mamselle.' Ollie, don't be foolish.' That prim little Frenchwoman, she hadn't yet got over the music lessons being taken away from her. That wouldn't help. His little sweet was the only friend they had. Well, they were her lessons, and he shouldn't budge, shouldn't budge for anything. He stroked the warm wool on Balthazar's head, and heard Holly say—' When mother's home, there won't be any changes, will there? She doesn't like strangers, you know. The child's words seemed to bring the chilly atmosphere's opposition about old Julian, and disclose all the menace to his new-found freedom. Ah, he would have to resign himself to being an old man at the mercy of care and love, or fight to keep this new and prized companionship and to fight tired him to death. But his thin, worn face hardened into resolution till it appeared all jaw. This was his house and his affair. He should not budge. He looked at his watch, old and thin like himself. He had owned it fifty years. Past four already, and kissing the top of Holly's head in passing, he went down to the hall. He wanted to get hold of her before she went up to give her lesson. At the first sound of wheels he stepped out into the porch, and saw at once that the Victoria was empty. "'The train's in, sir, but the lady hasn't come.' Old Jolyon gave him a sharp upward look. His eyes seemed to push away that fat chap's curiosity, and defy him to see the bitter disappointment he was feeling. Very well, he said, and turned back into the house. He went to his study and sat down, quivering like a leaf. What did this mean? She might have lost her train, but he knew well enough she hadn't. Good-bye, dear Uncle Jolyon. Why good-bye, and not good-night? And that hand of hers lingering in the air. And her kiss. What? What did it mean? Vehement alarm and irritation took possession of him. He got up and began to pace the turkey carpet between window and wall. She was going to give him up. He felt it for certain, and he was defenseless. An old man wanting to look on beauty was ridiculous. Age closed his mouth, paralyzed his power to fight. He had no right to what was warm and living, no right to anything but memories and sorrow. He could not plead with her. Even an old man had his dignity. Defenseless. For an hour, lost to bodily fatigue, he paced up and down, past the bowl of carnations he had plucked, which mocked him with its scent. Of all things hard to bear. The prostration of will-power is hardest, for one who has always had his way. Nature had got him in its net, and like an unhappy fish he turned and swam at the meshes here and there, found no hole, no breaking point. They brought him tea at five o'clock, and a letter. For a moment hope beat up in him. He cut the envelope with the butter-knife, and read, "'Dearest Uncle Jolyon, I can't bear to write anything that may disappoint you, but I was too cowardly to tell you last night. I feel I can't come down and give Holly any more lessons now that June is coming back. Some things go too deep to be forgotten. It has been such a joy to see you and Holly. Perhaps I shall still see you sometimes when you come up, though I'm sure it's not good for you.' I can see you are tiring yourself too much. I believe you ought to rest quite quietly all this hot weather, and now you have your son and June coming back, you will be so happy. Thank you a million times over for all your sweetness to me. Lovingly, your Irene. So that was it. Not good for him to have pleasure, and what he chiefly cared about to try and put off feeling the inevitable end of all things, the approach of death with its stealthy, rustling footsteps. Not good for him. Not even she could see how she was his new lease of interest in life, the incarnation of all the beauty he felt slipping from him. His tea grew cold, his cigar remained unlit, and up and down he paced torn between his dignity and his hold on life. Intolerable to be squeezed out slowly, without a say of your own, to live on when your will was in the hands of others, bent on weighing you to the ground with care and love. Intolerable! He would see what telling her the truth would do, the truth that he wanted the sight of her more than just lingering on. He sat down at his old bureau and took a pen, but he could not write. There was something revolting in having to plead like this, plead that she should warm his eyes with her beauty. It was tantamount to confessing dotage. He simply could not. And instead he wrote, I had hoped that the memory of old sores would not be allowed to stand in the way of what is a pleasure and a profit to me and my little granddaughter. But old men learn to forego their whims. They are obliged to. Even the whim to live must be foregone sooner or later, and perhaps the sooner the better. My love to you, Jolyon Forsythe. Bitter, he thought, but I can't help it. I'm tired. He sealed and dropped it into the box for the evening post, and hearing it fall to the bottom, thought, there goes all I've looked forward to. That evening, after dinner, which he scarcely touched, after his cigar, which he left half smoked, for it made him feel faint, he went very slowly upstairs and stole into the night nursery. He sat down on the window-seat. A nightlight was burning, and he could just see Holly's face, with one hand underneath the cheek. An early cockchafer buzzed in the Japanese paper with which they had filled the grate, and one of the horses in the stable stamped restlessly. To sleep like that child! He pressed apart two rungs of the Venetian blind and looked out. The moon was rising blood-red. He had never seen so red a moon. The woods and fields out there were dropping to sleep, too, in the last glimmer of the summer light. And beauty, like a spirit, walked. I've had a long life, he thought, the best of nearly everything. I'm an ungrateful chap. I've seen a lot of beauty in my time. Poor young Boson, he said, I had a sense of beauty Oh, there's a man in the moon tonight. A moth went by, another, another. Ladies in grey. He closed his eyes. A feeling that he would never open them again beset him. He let it grow, let himself sink. Then, with a shiver, dragged the lids up. There was something wrong with him, no doubt, deeply wrong. He would have to have the doctor after all. It didn't much matter now. Into that coppice the moonlight would have crept. There would be shadows, and those shadows would be the only things awake. No birds, beasts, flowers, insects. Just the shadows moving. Ladies in grey. Over that log they would climb, would whisper together. She and Bosony, funny thought and the frogs and little things would whisper too. How the clock ticked in here! It was all eerie, out there in the light of that red moon, in here with the little steady night-light, and the ticking clock and the nurse's dressing-gown hanging from the edge of the screen, tall like a woman's figure, lady in grey. And a very odd thought beset him did she exist? Had she ever come at all? Or was she but the emanation of all the beauty he had loved, and must leave so soon? The violet-gray spirit, with the dark eyes and the crown of amber hair, who walks the dawn and the moonlight, and at bluebell-time? What was she? Who was she? Did she exist? He rose. And stood a moment, clutching the window-sill to give him a sense of reality again, then began tiptoeing towards the door. He stopped at the foot of the bed, and Holly, as if conscious of his eyes fixed on her, stirred, sighed, and curled up closer in defence. He tiptoed on and passed out into the dark passage, reached his room, undressed at once, and stood before the mirror in his nightshirt what a scarecrow with temples fallen in and thin legs his eyes resisted his own image and a look of pride came on his face all was in league to put him down even his reflection in the glass but he was not down yet he got into bed and lay a long time without sleeping trying to reach resignation only too well aware that fretting and disappointment were very bad for him. He woke in the morning so unrefreshed and strengthless that he sent for the doctor. After sounding him the fellow pulled a face as long as your arm and ordered him to stay in bed and give up smoking. That was no hardship, there was nothing to get up for, and when he felt ill tobacco always lost its savor. He spent the morning languidly, with the sun blinds down, turning and returning the times, not reading much, the dog Balthasar lying beside his bed. With his lunch they brought him a telegram, running thus, "'Your letter received, coming down this afternoon, will be with you at four-thirty. Irene.' "'Coming down, after all!' Then she did exist and he was not deserted. Coming down! A glow ran through his limbs. His cheeks and forehead felt hot. He drank his soup and pushed the tray-table away, lying very quiet until they had removed lunch and left him alone. But every now and then his eyes twinkled. Coming down! His heart beat fast, and then did not seem to beat at all. At three o'clock he got up, and dressed deliberately, noiselessly. Holly and Mam'selle would be in the schoolroom, and the servants asleep after their dinner, he shouldn't wonder. He opened his door cautiously, and went downstairs. In the hall the dog Balthazar lay solitary, and, followed by him, old Jolyon passed into a study and out into the burning afternoon. He meant to go down and meet her at the coppice, but felt at once he could not manage that in this heat. He sat down instead under the oak tree by the swing, and the dog Balthazar, who also felt the heat, lay down beside him. He sat there smiling. What a revel of bright minutes! What a hum of insects and cooing of pigeons! It was the quintessence of a summer day lovely. And he was happy, happy as a sand boy, whatever that might be. She was coming. She had not given him up. He had everything in life he wanted, except a little more breath and less weight, just here. He would see her when she emerged from the fernery, come swaying just a little, a violet-gray figure passing over the daisies and dandelions and soldiers on the lawn, the soldiers with their flowery crowns. He would not move, but she would come up to him and say, Dear Uncle Jolyon, I am sorry, and sit in the swing and let him look at her and tell her that he had not been very well, but was all right now, and that dog would lick her hand. That dog knew his master was fond of her. That dog was a good dog. It was quite shady under the tree. The sun could not get at him, only make the rest of the world bright, so that he could see the grandstand at Epsom far away out there, very far, and the cows cropping the clover in the field and swishing at the flies with their tails. He smelled the scent of limes and lavender. Ah! That was why there was such a racket of bees. They were excited, busy as his heart was busy and excited, drowsy, too, drowsy and drugged on honey and happiness, as his heart was drugged and drowsy. Summer, summer, they seemed saying, great bees and little bees and the flies, too. The stable clock struck four. In half an hour she would be here. He would have just one tiny nap, because he had so little sleep of late, and and then he would be fresh for her, fresh for youth and beauty coming towards him across the sunlit lawn, lady in grey and, settling back in his chair, he closed his eyes. Some thistle-down came on what little air there was, and pitched on his moustache more white than itself. He did not know, but his breathing stirred it, caught there. A ray of sunlight struck through and lodged on his boot. A bumblebee alighted and strolled on the crown of his Panama hat. And, the delicious surge of slumber reached the brain beneath that hat, and the head swayed forward and rested on his breast. Summer, summer, so went the hum. The stable clock struck the quarter-past. The dog Balthasar stretched and looked up at his master. The thistledown no longer moved. The dog placed his chin over the sunlit foot it did not stir. The dog withdrew his chin quickly, rose, and leaped on old Jolyon's lap, looked in his face, whined, then, leaping down, sat on his haunches, gazing up, and suddenly he uttered a long, long howl. But the thistledown was still as death, and the face of his old master. Summer, summer, summer. The soundless footsteps on the grass. End of Part Four of Tale Number Five End of Five Tales by John Galsworthy